Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are moving now finally into Matthew as, as our, as our dedica- dedicated uh, gospel for this year. And we're in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. And this is really the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Yeah, thanks, Christy. Um, although Matthew's story of the introduction to Jesus' public ministry shares... Um, significant amount of material found elsewhere in the synoptic gospel tradition. As I think we've already come to realize, Matthew is going to shape his narrative in light of his own concerns, especially the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and the mission to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Now, um, we have jumped over some important context in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' baptism by John in in um, Matthew chapter 3 um, uh, and we chose instead last week to look at, or two weeks ago, to look at the visit of the Magi. And we're, we're skipping over his temptation in the wilderness because the Revised Common Lectionary saves it for Lent. Mm-hmm. I would agree, though, with W.D. Davies and Dale Allison that at least in Matthew's Gospel, the baptism and temptation stories belong together. And here they're actually citing B.H. Streeter's foundational work, mm-hmm. The Four Gospels from 1930. Uh, together... The, the, the baptism and the temptation stories in Matthew's gospel serve as something similar to the call narratives of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we, when we come back to right. the temptation uh, in Lent. But um, You know, as you're pointing this out, it reminds me of some of the challenges of the Revised Common Lectionary to get yeah. the whole story out. Yeah. And we're, we have to even pick and choose mm-hmm. because we even have choices at this point. And... I always feel like I always feel like I'm not getting to kind of go through the whole story. Right. I I don't know that there's a solution to that in the way we have our current church. I don't know set that up. there is either. I mean, some folks have bumped, jumped to the narrative lectionary, but again, it's still a lectionary. It's, and I it, exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. I think it's you know. I suppose you could potentially put the temptation and the baptism together, some monster thing but that is so much material that would be a lot, yeah. right would be a lot. so yeah. yeah there's a lot of problems but anyway. we're gonna we're when when i talk about when we talk about the temptation i'm gonna talk about the baptism because it's you, you can't really talk mm. about the one without the other right i yeah. i think so yeah so anyway talking about the baptism what what does jesus's baptism do so in matthew's gospel jesus baptism not only introduces jesus role as son of god mm-hmm. this is my son the beloved but also focuses on his role as a servant of the Lord from Second Isaiah because there's an allusion here to Isaiah 42.1, which talks about the servant of the Lord. And this also dovetails, I think, with another significant theme in Matthew's gospel, that Jesus has come to fulfill all righteousness. If you recall the story in Matthew's mm-hmm. baptismal account, John tries to prevent Jesus, and, and he says, no, it's fitting that we right. fulfill all righteousness. righteousness. 
And so we've already mentioned that righteousness or dikaiosune is going to be important to Matthew. And here we see the introduction to the theme. As the Son of God and as the servant of the Lord, Jesus fulfills all righteousness. And in fact, the two titles really kind of intertwine in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is God's Son in that he fulfills the role of the servant who suffers. And so again, we see that the New Testament has a really functional Christology and not so much of an ontological Christology. Mm, mm-hmm. There's not, you know, there's not much of dealing with the persons of Christ and how they right, interact with one another. Right, right. So this leads into the temptation. How does that yes, work? Yes, it does. Well, th- this ber- this idea, I think, of the fact that Jesus is going to fulfill all righteousness is carried forward in Matthew's story of Jesus' temptation. Like God's son, Israel, Jesus comes through the waters of baptism, which could be compared to the Exodus, mm-hmm. to be tempted or tested in the wilderness for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And of course, years. with Israel, it's 40 <laughs> years, right? Mm-hmm. And whereas Israel failed their test, however, Jesus holds fast to his faith and faithfulness in mm. God. And that's the comparison that Jesus, Matthew wants to make. He wants us to see that, that Jesus is the one who faithfully fulfills this role as mm-hmm. God's son by, being, by holding fast to his faith and in faithfulness to God. And so in Matthew's version, then the order of the temptations, which is different from, from Luke's gospel, presents an increasingly more intense challenge for Jesus. First, using his power or authority to relieve his own hunger. Mm -hmm. Second, putting his trust in God's faithfulness to the test. And third, abandoning fidelity to God's purpose and obedience to God's will altogether by worshiping the tempter. And at each point, Jesus demonstrates his commitment to fulfilling all righteousness by remaining true to God and Mm -hmm. to Scripture. And, of course, he cites Scripture from Deuteronomy to... to to back, you know, to in his responses to the temptations. So we find here in Jesus the example of what the greater righteousness that Jesus is going to call disciples to to live out is going to look like. And and what what Jesus is going to call disciples to seek first, seek first God's kingdom, God's kingdom. and his righteousness. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is this righteousness that is that is meant to be the pattern for for the lives of, of disciples. And we're going to discuss this all in much more detail when we come to Lent. But this is a backdrop now for today. Right, right. So what? how does this well, move into the day? So then it brings us to our gospel lesson, which introduces Jesus' public ministry. And so in Jesus' public ministry, then Jesus launches this this project of, of basically um, – fulfilling God's saving purpose by fulfilling the role of God's son and God's and God and the servant of the Lord. And so Matthew again frames the story with reference to the themes he's already introduced, especially the focus on the kingdom of heaven and or God and the mission to the Gentiles. He begins by telling us that now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee in verse 12. It seems strange, I think, that Matthew would initiate his account of Jesus' public ministry by telling us that Jesus withdrew to Galilee. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, right? That seems that seems opposite. That so. seems opposite, right? But we must remember that his baptism and temptation probably occurred in the Transjordan mm-hmm. near Judea, where John had right. been active. Um, withdrawing to Galilee out of concern for falling into the hands of the Jewish leaders too quickly seems strange, however, since John was arrested by Herod Antipas, who was the client king of the territory that included Galilee. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't seem that Galilee would have been safe. So that, that approach to, to understanding this really doesn't help us a mm-hmm. lot, I think. But I don't think Matthew leaves us hanging with reference to what, what's motivating him here. He tells us that 
Jesus left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun right. and Naphtali in, in verse 13. And Matthew introduces Capernaum as the center of Jesus' ministry. And we've see this, seen this highlighted before, right. especially in Mark. But Matthew goes beyond the rest of the synoptic tradition and tells us that Jesus made his home there. And that's a pretty significant statement. Um, so the point of this then all of this is to introduce another of Matthew's formula quotations. This one from Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 in Matthew 4, 14 through 16. So that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And so Matthew is, is basically focusing on Galilee because he wants to bring in this, this fulfillment this, this quotation. This fulfillment co- Right, this quotation. formula quotation. Right, okay. Now, we should note at the outset that Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 9, 1 through 2 agrees with neither the Hebrew Bible nor the Septuagint. And, you know, again, perhaps I wonder if we should see this as an example of a citation with interpretive alteration. You know, Calvin actually notes this yeah. in his as well and, and, and basically makes that assertion right there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So we've discussed the use of Isaiah 9 in the New Testament several times, and so at this point I just want to reiterate that in the original context, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, was spoken about the people of the former northern kingdom of Israel who had been devastated by the Assyrian conquest and deportation. And then the rest of Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 then concerns the birth of an heir to David's throne, very likely Hezekiah, and the hope attached to his birth was such that not only would he restore Judah, but also the nation as a whole, or David's kingdom, which originally included both the northern kingdom of Israel and Judah. And so um, um, that seems to be uh, the gist of Isaiah 9 in its original context. But it would seem that the point of all this in Matthew is to say that Jesus was fulfilling God's saving purpose specifically by beginning his public ministry in Galilee. Mm. And so he uses Isaiah 9 then as a basis for locating Jesus ministry in Galilee as, mm-hmm. as, and and basically presenting that as something where Jesus is fulfilling God's saving purpose. Again. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, again, in the gospel tradition as a whole, it's clear that the fact that Jesus was perceived to have come from Galilee, and again, Matthew says he made his home there, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> was a point of confusion and criticism from the Jewish people. We, uh, in John 7.52, the Jewish religious leaders declare that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. So perhaps Matthew simply wanted to present Jesus' Galilean ministry as a part of the, his fulfillment of God's saving purpose generally, mm-hmm. which is sort of the, the theme of the, of the right, formula quotations, right right? right? right, And he does that by citing Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. And, and this idea, I think this idea is supported by the fact that Matthew's scriptural quotations in chapter 2, including Matthew 2, 6, which where, where, where the chief priest and the scribes of the people cite Micah 5, 2 and 2 mm-hmm. Samuel 5, 2 as a reference to Bethlehem as the place of his birth. Matthew 2.15, which is the reference to Hosea 11.1, which talks about he called his son out of Egypt. Um, Matthew 2.18, which talks about the weeping of Ramah after the murder of the innocents. And then Matthew 2.23, we don't really know where that one came from. Maybe Isaiah 4.5, maybe Isaiah 11.1, which refers to the fact that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Mm Mm-hmm. 
all of those serve the purpose of substantiating the geography of Jesus' life, which is an interesting feature that I don't think I've noticed until yeah, that is really, until this that year. That is really interesting. Um, and and why? Yeah, I, I apparently, I mean, obviously, it was important that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? So that he could be understood right. as the as the son of David and the Messiah. But again, I would say probably one of the motivating factors behind Matthew is that Matthew wants to show Jesus as the true son of God who fulfills his destiny faithfully, unlike Israel, the original son of God, who oh. failed. So Jesus is recapitulating sort of the, the story of, of Israel from you know, from Egypt, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily to Nazareth, but from Egypt, and then, yeah. and then. Um, this is interesting. This I'm really intrigued by this. Yeah. Um, this yeah. this com- kind of parallelism between Jesus and and Israel. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I don't think I've heard this before, so yeah, I'm really that, intrigued. It's actually a pretty common theme among Matthew commentators mm-hmm. that they see this kind of parallel going on that Jesus fulfills the role of the son of God in a way that Israel failed to do. And we we see this really brought out clearly in the in the baptism and temptation mm-hmm. narratives yeah, especially. That's really, really But it seems that 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 so again Matthew may be just simply trying to um, validate the fact that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee by saying he was fulfilling God's saving purpose. Right. And it's interesting that the that the formula quotation refers to geography, a place, yeah. Galilee. Yeah. 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 But I think perhaps even more significant from my point of view is the fact that the citation calls Galilee Galilee of the Gentiles. Yes. And this is so interesting. When I was reading your comments, I put there, is this really significant, you know? And is is this is this reflecting some kind of broader uh, ministry to outside of the Jewish population. Well, I think we'll see. We're gonna we're gonna I know, see that. I got so we, we, we have we have a few we have a few steps to go through okay, to get okay, there. Okay, I can't but... get so excited. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Excitement is good. So, in the context of Isaiah nine, the original reference likely refers to the fact that the territories on the northern edge of the land were never fully conquered. Yeah. Uh, there remained a significant Gentile presence in that region sure. during the time even of Joshua and the other sure. early leaders, and even later during sure. the kingdom era. You know, there, there remained a significant Gentile presence in that region. Well, and you know, as you're talking about that in a whole, when we look at maps and we see lines, that's mm-hmm. kind of a modern yeah, world right. kind of concept. I mean, um, you the, may have a natural line by a river or by a right. mountain range you can't pass, but otherwise, yeah. The boundaries there were fluid. <laughs> yes. And, and all throughout, all throughout yes. uh, Israelite history. Exactly, exactly. And of course, after the deportation of the northern kingdom, the Hebrew Bible mentions that the Assyrians brought in a significant number of Gentiles. This was their strategy for conquering territory. They deported the, the top, you know, elite of the society and they brought in others and they this was a way of sort of oh yes um um disenfranchising them from their own ethnic identity yeah you 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 have children with them you 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 decrease the pop genetic population and so they and and hopefully in their minds whatever it it also diminishes their cultural exactly uh, alliances i guess their allegiance to their culture 
Now, in the era preceding Jesus' ministry and after, there are sources that refer, again, to a significant Gentile population in Galilee. First Maccabees speaks mm-hmm. about um, the, peop- the Galileans attacking the Maccabeans. Uh, Strabo and his Geographica mentions the presence of many different um, ethnic groups in Galilee. Josephus also refers mm-hmm. to this. Um, I, I, I do want to say probably most people have overdrawn the religious distinction between Galilee and and Judea, maybe based on John chapter 4 and Jesus' dialogue with the woman at the well. Right. Um, Could be. You know, there were differences, but the differences probably have been drawn too starkly. Um, And Davies and Allison bring this up, and they remind us that, first of all, it's impossible to speak of Galilee as if it were a monolithic entity. Uh, you know, and even just by geography, if you know anything about Galilee, there is the upper Galilee in the north, which was largely rural and isolated and sort of hilly, mountainous mm-hmm. country. And there was the lower Galilee in the south, which was more urban. And, right, and right. so the, the, there's just a very different different uh, situation. But we, we also need to remember that Josephus was himself a general in the Jewish revolt against Rome. Right. And his he was he was located in Galilee. That's mm-hmm. where he did his service in the in the Jewish war. And and he describes the Jewish people living there as Torah observant. So okay. um, you know, it would seem that there were Jewish people who were observant in Gal- living in Galilee in Jesus' day. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It, all this is so interesting and I keep as as we're talking, I keep thinking about not trying to impose our ability to communicate with one another in a modern way on this era where mm where when you are separated and you're if you're in the northern Galilee and it's more pastoral that you really aren't having a lot of interaction no, with no, folks no. Um, news spreads really slowly in those yeah, days yeah, so yeah. anyway just a reminder that don't impose modern day on on really how distant these people well are from and each other. you know Galilee was different from Judea but exactly. but yeah. we shouldn't Put, we shouldn't we shouldn't see Galilee as completely Gentile territory. Well, I, I agree, right? Yeah. And I mean, I think that's particularly interesting. You have these people that are 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 focused on their faith, and they're they're focused on yes. how they understand their faith. So, yeah. and and apparently there was a significant number of pilgrims from Galilee who who went to Jerusalem every year for the feasts. You know, right? So, well, I mean, I can envision this as even if you're talking Northern Galilee. You still have these pockets of people that are living isolated, mm-hmm. pretty isolated from others. You know, they might go, "Oh, the Gentiles over the hill," but they're not—they're not living in the same community. Well, they're still their their the community is still going to be a synagogue. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a really long way to say that. Perfect. Yeah, right? <laughs> it would seem, however, that for Matthew. Uh, this this phrase Galilee of the Gentiles is significant, and the main point really is that even at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Gentiles are the beneficiaries of his proclamation of the yes. kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. They are the beneficiaries of his his ministry of healing and relief, and we see this in Matthew's narrative. Even uh, when when Matthew starts to narrate, you know, uh, Jesus' ministry, we see it. And as well, the Gentiles are the beneficiaries of Jesus' fulfillment of God's saving purpose. And so again, we will see that the mission to the Gentiles is a central concern for Matthew. See why I got so excited? Yes. Because I do yes. think, I mean, my gut feeling just in reading it was, I think 
Matthew put this in here mm-hmm. distinctly for this this reason. Yes, indeed. I think you're right. I think I'm you're right. I'm a brilliant commentator. <laughs> <laughs> and you are indeed. You are indeed. So then Matthew tells us that Jesus began his public ministry in verse 17 with the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in Matthew's gospel, this is word for word, the same as the message Matthew reports that John the Baptist was preaching in Matthew 3, 2. And here we see again the implication that Matthew seems to frame Jesus' ministry as one that was more closely aligned with John's vision of repentance in light of the coming judgment. But in light of Jesus' actual ministry, however, which even Matthew reports, which I find strange, but, you know, interesting, you know, in light of Jesus' ministry, his proclamation of God's saving reign looks very different from John's message of judgment. We should note that Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, we should also note that Jesus' proclamation that the kingdom of God has come near does not mean that it is not already present in his ministry. We've talked about that as well. Um, the language of coming near, does it, does it mean it's, it's only near or is it here? Um, right, and, and, right. And we've seen that in the New Testament, basically in the Gospels, Jesus' ministry inaugurates the saving reign of God that will be completed at the coming of the Son of Man. Mm-hmm. And we can, find, um, we can find references in Matthew's Gospel to this effect as well, not just in the other Gospels. I, you know, what is... <laughs> This language is, is a little bit confusing. We've talked about it before, but, but remind us, what is this relationship between kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God? Well, most New Testament scholars would say they're the same thing. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, some have tried to view the kingdom of heaven as a holy future phenomenon, but it's clear when you compare um, passages within the synoptic tradition uh, and, and as well, when you look at just the usages of the words in the Gospels themselves, each of the Gospels, that the two phrases are interchangeable, basically. Mm-hmm. And in, in fact, even in, in Matthew, while kingdom of heaven is clearly the predominant usage in Matthew, he also uses just simply the kingdom. We're going to see that at the end of this mm-hmm. passage. He preaches the good news of the kingdom. Mm-hmm. He uses the kingdom of God several times. Seek first the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and his righteousness. <laughs> the kingdom of the son of man is one reference the kingdom of their father he says at one point and then my father's kingdom mm-hmm. he says uh, 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 at the at the table at the last summer i will not drink uh, then uh, of the fruit of the vine until you know that day in my father's kingdom until it's fulfilled in my father's kingdom um and, and really, we see this kind of variation in, in the whole gospel tradition. And so I think in Matthew, as in the rest of the gospel tradition, the point is that by fulfilling God's saving purpose, Jesus is truly inaugurating the yeah. saving reign of yeah. God. Yeah. It, it's begging me to, to, you know, as I'm thinking about this parallelism between Israel and Jesus and Israel kind of failing and Jesus succeeding, I mean, it makes me ask that question was Israel destined to fail? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Israel was meant to be God's agent of his saving purposes. I mean, you mm-hmm. look at you look at the sort of the call narrative for Israel at the, at the at Mount Sinai, you know, uh, in the in the material leading up to the 10 commandments. Mm-hmm. And you know, you have this language of, you know, you're going to be a kingdom of priests for me. 
you know, you're going to be my own mm-hmm. special possession. Right. And right. the point of that throughout the whole Bi- the Hebrew Bible is not that, oh, we have this wonderful special privilege, but the point is that God is going to use this particular people to reach yeah. <laughs> the rest of the nations. Yeah. So I think that was the intent from the start, and Israel failed in that calling miserably. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting theology there that my brain is swimming through, um, but but that's a yeah I, I, that's something I'm going to tuck away. We make, well, I mean, you could you could you could deal with the whole issue of well, did God intend to sing Jesus from the start? Which I mean, that's that's language of Paul, right? Exactly. And I think I would say yes, that was God's intention from before the foundation of the world. But at the same time, I don't think God destined Israel to fail. I think I think God's intent was that Israel would succeed mm-hmm. in their calling. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of a both-and situation, yeah. I think. Yeah, good, good, thank you. Yeah. Okay, and so now we kind of switch gears because we have the calling of the first disciples. Yep, yep, and in this segment... Matthew's account is virtually parallel to the one in Mark 1, 16 through 20. Yes. I mean, I didn't, I didn't actually count all the words of agreement this time, but it's, it's ver, almost right. verbatim agreement. They, they, each one leaves out words and the other one supplies word, but it's virtually verbatim agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in this story, Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee and saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter in Matthew, and Andrew, his brother, who were fishing. Um, and the fact that Jesus, without any hesitation, calls them to follow me, and I will make you fish for people, followed by the report that immediately they left their nets and followed him, seems to demand some kind of explanation. Because, you know, in, in, in Mark, as in Matthew, he just walks up to them out of nowhere and, and calls them to follow him. Uh, and as we've discussed before, many try to harmonize the account of Jesus' encounter, initial encounter with some of John's followers in John 1, 35 to 51, with this. And so they say, well, this that, that, that initial encounter in John 1 sort of prepared them. And so then they already knew Jesus. They'd already encountered Jesus so that when he comes to call them to follow him, they're ready to go. But that's a harmonization. And of right. course, unfortunately, we all know Last week, the Revised Common Lectionary jumped from Matthew to John because mm-hmm. the lectionary typically does this, inserts John's account right. into the lectionary cycle prior to this, you know, the, the, the synoptic right. accounts of the calling of the disciples. Yeah, and I, I have mixed feelings about that. I don't. I, I think, well, I mean, obviously we still follow it, but yet you could see the, the challenge there then is that in the minds of people listening mm-hmm. is that this... It, it kind of, it, it just dis, it, it it convinces them that that's the, the that's the right understanding. understanding. I right. That, I mean, that's. <laughs> yeah. uh, and I think it's completely. I think it's completely artificial, and I think it's a mistake because it 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 misses the point. It misses and it misses the point of Matthew really. So, have you ever jumped then to maybe an Old Testament passage or something? So you're not. I've done a lot of those kinds of things. That's, you know, if, 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 you know, one year I actually, I actually changed up, (laughs) I changed up the second, I I went through the whole year and I planned a series on Mark's gospel that didn't have anything else but Mark. Mm. I didn't jump to John ever. And, you know, I have mixed feelings about that as well. But um, uh, I don't like the fact that I, that they're they're trying to harmonize John with with the synoptic gospels here. I think it's both artificial and unnecessary. In Matthew's account, Jesus is portrayed as a charismatic prophetic figure who, like Elijah, chose his disciples, 
they did not choose him. Mm -hmm. And so basically Mm -hmm. in Matthew's gospel, I think we're not meant to read Jesus' words to them as an invitation to come after him, but rather a command, come after me. Yeah, and so I think I think Matthew undoubtedly intends this narrative to convey Jesus' sense of urgency about his mission. You know, later on in Matthew chapter nine, he's going to say, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few." So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so Jesus has this seemingly sense of seeming uh, has this sense of urgency about mm-hmm. the mission, and I think I think that was probably what compelled them to to uh, obey him and and to and to leave without question um you know as i'm thinking i mean most people who look at this passage they're gonna they're gonna talk about the call story they're not mm-hmm. that, they're not going to talk about the other things that's what they're attracted to and so thinking about this and and presenting it so it's it gets the urgency that matthew is trying to portray here i think is significant mm-hmm. um i can't remember now um this parallel passage in Mark, when it's Mark's year, do they still insert John? Yes. Yeah, man. Yes. <laughs> wow. I believe so. I believe so. Um, anyway, uh, so you know, I think I think I think we're meant, especially in Matthew's gospel, to hear a sense of urgency in in the mission. And so, the first disciples, not only Simon and Andrew, but also James and John, then respond to that sense of urgency when they leave their nets, their boats, and in the case of the latter brothers, their father, to join Jesus in his mission. And that Jesus promises that he will make them fishers of people, basically, uh, which constitutes an invitation to join him in his work of seeking those that most need. God's saving mercy, we're going to find as we go through Matthew's gospel, um, the, you know, then they, they follow him. Uh, I find it interesting that when you look at the calling of the tax collector, Levi, mm-hmm. who in the first gospel is named Matthew, <laughs> yes. ding, ding, ding. Exactly. Um, in Matthew 9, 9 through 13, especially in, in 9, 12 through 13, um, the, when the Jewish religious leaders cri- criticize him for associating with sinners, basically, he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, mm-hmm. but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come call- to call not the righteous, but sinners. And I think <clears throat> this, I mean, in other synoptic gospels, it says, not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I think it's significant that in Matthew it leaves it out. And so it's 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 mm-hmm. intriguing to me that Matthew keeps trying to present Jesus as following in the footsteps of John the Baptist with this idea of a call to repentance in view of the coming judgment. But then he keeps reporting the act- actions of Jesus and the words of Jesus, which are much more focused on mercy and mm-hmm. God's saving mercy yes, yes. like this. And, and so, and especially with the calling of Matthew yeah, <laughs> in, yes, in Matthew's gospel, yes, right? Yeah, right. Um, that's probably a pretty significant passage that we should note, you know, that, that we should pay right. attention to, to what's going on there. Right, right. And, and the reformers actually picked up on that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's kind of interesting. So, um, and then ultimately we have a, kind of an ending tag piece to this. Yeah. And I, I don't really like the fact that our, our lectionary passage ends with Matthew 4.23, but there Matthew summarizes Jesus' Galilean ministry in a sentence, basically. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Mm -hmm. Now, this is necessary. This kind of summary sentence is necessary because Matthew interrupts 
the narrative of Jesus' Galilean ministry. You know, Mark and Luke both just go right into the story of Jesus' Galilean ministry after his mm-hmm. initial public right. appearance. Matthew interrupts that narrative to present the block of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, is going to present in much greater detail the righteousness of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, again, this is an important part of Matthew's strategy. So, but I think the conclusion of the passage should be extended. In fact, I, I will be I will be reading through verse twenty five when I do this mm-hmm. uh, on the Sunday that that this is the gospel reading. And the result then of Jesus' mission and ministry in Galilee is presented as attracting great crowds of followers from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. You know, when you when you look at all of that especially the Decapolis, when you put the Decapolis in there, that was Gentile territory. That was, yep. yep and yep. so um, I think we, we should, again, already understand that Jesus is attracting Gentiles to his yep. ministry from the start. Yep. And wow. Matthew will resume mm-hmm. the narrative then of Jesus' Galilean ministry in chapter 8 after he finishes with the Sermon on the Mount. Wow. that I mean, it's a lot, it's a lot richer than I think most of us who come in and just see that call story in this. There's a lot more going on. There is a lot. Thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to see what Christy found in the in the reformers. We're going to find some interesting um, points related to um, calling, and and some interesting points of connection between Calvin and and my presentation, as she's already alluded to. Yeah, so, Christy, let tell us tell us what you found. Yeah, you bet. Well, so today I, I looked at commentaries as well as some secondary material, and I'm going to start with the commentaries today, mostly Calvin. I have a few others that I, I picked at, and then um, I'm going to kind of spend a time after that going into, into detail on really the whole idea about call. But um, so I divided the commentaries kind of into three kind of main sections of points that I thought were, were interesting. And the first was in the relationship of Isaiah. Um, and so, as we have seen, Calvin is interested in interpreting Scripture in terms of Scripture, and he uses Matthew four thirteen through 16 as a reference point for quite a broad interpretation. Um, Calvin notes that Matthew, quote, alters the sense of the prophet's testimony. In other words, Calvin does not read the quotation of Isaiah as a prediction of Christ. He is aware that Isaiah at this time is talking about the restoration of the, of the Israel nation, Israeli Israelite. Israelite nation. But then Calvin goes on to say that while this literalism is an incorrect use of Scripture, that the broader intention of Scripture does make sense as Matthew used it, as Calvin calls it, quote, the true intent of the prophet. And to Calvin, this is to show God's deliverance of the people from their lowest point. And while this promise was initially made to the Israelites, Calvin has no trouble extending it to all people. In other words, he believes the prophet in being a prophet did foresee that this message may extend beyond Israel. And Calvin says, quote, certainly the prophet's words were related to the fall of the nation, but it is a portrayal of the state of the human race previous to its deliverance by the grace of Christ. I found that interesting. I, I really, I, I found his, his willingness to apply it you know, broader than than the original intent, a, an interesting uh, approach. I also found it interesting that he was willing to say that Matthew alters the sense of the prophet's testimony. Yeah. I mean, you know, even today, 
to say Matthew actually changes the wording when he quotes scripture. That's a little bit hard hard for people to hear, even today. Exactly. So I don't imagine that in Calvin's day he could say, well, Matthew actually changes the wording of Isaiah. Well, <laughs> you know. But he kind of gets close to that. He, he really does. Yeah. He really does. And I, I thought that was really um, kind of progressive of him. Mm-hmm. But we've seen this before with Calvin. Mm-hmm. And I think as they are, I think it reflects this kind of, intellectual age and his curiosity and diving into scripture and really trying to learn what it says. Well, and it bears out something that I've always maintained, and that is that you don't have to have a PhD in biblical studies to be become an astute Bible reader. You just have to read the Bible a lot and study mm-hmm. it a lot. And he obviously had done that. Exactly. And so, you yeah. know, the, it, my, my contention has always been that if you really pay attention and read the Bible um, uh, carefully and white, rightly, it's going to teach you how right. to interpret it. Exactly. Well, and interesting too, and I'm thinking about this, I mean, he did that, but of course, prior to this was the Vulgate, and they used mm. this, and it was kind of this infallible kind of. Yep, it was. And, and you know, it was the vellum it was the, based. It was the Bible scripture. of the church. It was the Bible of the church, and so had been for a thousand they, years. They come in and they discover that. Oh my gosh, we have these other um, these other manuscripts. We have these Greek manuscripts, and they don't agree, and so. Hebrew manuscripts exactly as well. they're yeah. able to um, really begin to study it in a new way mm-hmm. and um, I think it's healthy for us and sometimes I think people you know they, they look at that text and that text is they don't go beyond it it's carved and in stone it's carved in stone even yeah. the the English text and so um, you know I particularly hear that with certain groups that try to tell me the King James is like the only inspired Bible which isn't I mean, even in the Presbyterian Church, you would think the new RSV is almost sacrosanct, you know. And I, I've started actually using different translations, even for our scripture readings in in worship. And actually, it was one of my one of my elders who did that. He always read from the message when he right. was a liturgist, and I just kind of began to take a cue, a, a clue a cue from him. If a if a if a if a certain English translation renders a passage in a better sense than right, the NRSV, right. I'll use that instead. I, I was gonna I'd I push back a little. I grew up Presbyterian. Oh. I remember growing up, my my pastor would often choose a different yeah a different really. scripture, a different yeah. translation, um, and would encourage us. We Good. had the NSRVs. Well, probably was the RSV, but in probably was the RSV yeah. in in the in the pews. But he would encourage us to bring another translation with yeah, us. Yeah. So and usually when we would sit together in, in Bible studies, they encourage the students, kids, to have as many different translations as possible. Nice. So yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's kind of a standard that we have in maybe the pews, but I I would say beyond that, there's a great encouragement to to understand that there's these other translations out there and that those differences are important for us to listen to. Sure, sure. So anyway, the next section um, is in the calling of the disciples, or at least this is how I divided it. And um, here Calvin gets into his harmonizing activity. Of course. (laughs) And he ultimately concludes that uh, with going through them, that they, 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 they all agree. They all agree that Peter, <laughs> Andrew, James, and John's were called, and he claims that the differences are not cause for alarm, but rather just how the evangelist chose to tell the story. I mean, then there's some interesting etymology on the term Galilee that he ties to the Hebrew Chinnereth, 
um, that declined, as he said, because language declines into uh, Genesaret. And then he claimed that the pagan writers spoke of Genesar and ultimately um, called the Sea of Galilee. Mm. So I thought that was hmm. an interesting attempt at trying to make Some sense etymology. of the word. Etymology. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of things. Um, first is that we, I thought was interesting, we're getting into this kind of scholarship um, and and uh, there's the, and a real interest in words mm-hmm. um, and the kind of a deep understanding of where words come from and develop. And this is all very early modern kind of work. Sure. This was really lost in a medieval period. In fact, if you know, if you've taken Latin and you try to read medieval Latin, it's just weird, you know? And of course, it's the Middle Ages there that we see that kind of Latin devolve, if you will, into our Romance languages. So you have all these these roots from Latin, but they all kind of take on these own localized regional um, terms. So interesting. They're going to find that. Well, and you know, some of the, some of the seminal work that lies behind even our modern lexicon, lexicon for either for Greek or Hebrew Mm -hmm. uh, started um, maybe not in the maybe in the 17th century i would say yep. not maybe not in the 16th century right. but i would say it began it started Absolutely. in the 17th century Absolutely. and began to bear fruit then in the in the 18th and right. the early 19th century one well, in some of the the dictionaries and encyclopedia work that's going on into the you know the early modern period to mm-hmm. 17th 18th, 18th century so yeah all this is starting now yeah. and we think this has always been there and it hasn't no. um you know trying to keep track of this all was an the innovation words. exactly yeah. exactly so um, that's why sometimes though we have to keep that in mind when we're when right. we read these 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 people is they don't have the depth of tradition of 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 a- academics in terms of um, in terms of word study that sure, kind of thing. Sure. So um, then moving on to um, another th- part of this was just how they were so very interested in geography, mm. um, and um, it takes it back. Um, to uh, the resettlement of the area by the remnant. This is a, one of the theories by a fellow by named John Lightfoot. We've had him before. But that the area of Galilee actually was settled by the remnant of the Hebrews after the Babylonian captivity. Mm. <laughs> He's got this whole theory. Interesting. Um, and he explains that those folks that were part of the northern tribe of Israel um, would repopulate Galilee, while those from Judah and Benjamin would repopulate Judea. Huh. So they were considerably different now again i don't mm. he doesn't have any basis for this except I, I think theory. He, well because because the 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 uh, you know historically i would say the northern kingdom was already it's gone, already gone and, right? and before and the babylonians came they're on the already scene. assimilate no. so <laughs> the, yeah. the, the babylonians primarily took the judeans into captivity exactly yeah. it doesn't really it doesn't really hold any weight but i thought it was interesting how he put it out there and there were others that kind of thought that might be the case would explain why you know there's nobody good from nazareth later on right, right? And, right. and but hmm. Anyway, I just it, it was interesting. They were they're trying to make sense of it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so then we finally get to the calling of the disciples, um, and I'll spend more time on this in a in a bit. But Calvin claims that this event um, that Christ is calling these folks to public service as apostles, um, and they are given a public role, and they will be preaching. So this call of the the, the first disciples is really a call to create this kind of 
preaching group of preaching Role, teaching huh? people yes yeah. mm-hmm. and he notes that people the people he chooses are ignorant of doctrine and uneducated um I don't know if they're really truly ignorant of doctrine, but that's what he says. <laughs> well, he, I mean, obviously they hadn't been to seminary, right? But um, you know, again, it comes back to the to the role of education in the synagogues and mm-hmm. the role, you know, the extent of literacy in Palestine of the first century, and um, um, you know, especially a, a tax collector, you know, may have had some sort of other education you know there right. there were there were teachers there were um um gymnasium gymnasia in 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 the ancient world in greek and rome right, of course. greece and rome and of course the hasmoneans kind of introduced some of this tradition into the jewish world during their hellenistic reign um uh, so yeah I think it's probably a bit of an overstatement to say they were ignorant of doctrine right, and educated. Right, although I do, th- I do think he's, he's saying this is is saying, look, these aren't just smart, rich people that are well well trained. Right. These are these are common people. They don't have the rabbinic training exactly. that Paul apparently had. Right, right. Um, and he does see the call as parallel to pastors. In other words, God calls who God calls. Right, right. Um, and. Uh, and then after noting that these first disciples are called the public service, Calvin then explains how they will be taught and trained. Mm. And this he explains that folks currently called the public service likewise need training. Yeah, I guess, you know, especially if, you are, if you're harmonizing the Gospels and you have this sense of a three-year ministry of Jesus, mm-hmm. which you have to do if you, harmon- if you try to harmonize yes, the absolutely. synoptics with John. If you just look at the synoptics, you could conceivably construct a one-year ministry right, of Jesus, right? But but he's with John, always, he says three years. I mean, yeah. Every and so time if you think about album. that, then they sort of, you know, you could say that perhaps the time that they spent with Jesus was their preparation as well. Exa- yeah. Exactly. Yep. Um, and so, um, and in, in, in terms of this training, that are the practices of folks during the. Um, sorry. Um, he's kind of talking about the need for training because during the Reformation, there's really in the priesthood of all believers, this idea that anybody can preach without any training. Mm-hmm. And so in his commentary, he even ridicules those who claim that they are closer to the apostles because they have no training, which is a thing. <laughs> it's still a thing, it by is, the way. It is still a thing, yeah. absolutely. And he also notes later, Paul, who is highly educated, is brought into a leadership role. In other words, and, 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 and highlights that. So in some ways... Calvin is responding to the threat from untrained pastors, which had caused a great deal of mm. uproar and turmoil in a Reformation. I mean, these were the people we've talked about so often, sure. the spiritualists, the, many of the Anabaptists were in that group, not Sick all of them. prophets. Mm, and, yeah, yeah, some of these folks. Yeah. And of course, when we look at the institutes, we know there's a great call for training of pastors. And of course, Presbyterians take pride in this today. So... The next question, um, why did these folks follow Christ? And this is, of course, one of our modern-day questions. And for Calvin, they followed because of the guidance of the Spirit. It was Christ's Hmm. voice, but it was how they were moved within. He again uses this section to claim that this is the call of all ministers. Uh, Ministers should, quote, neglect all their other concerns and attach themselves, devote themselves wholly to the church, to Hmm. within to which they are appointed. Neglect all their other concerns. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Which is really interesting. <laughs> or, you know, and I wonder in the, 
the context of this is this is that at least your whole life should be focused to, towards your ministry. Mm-hmm. I.e., you could get married, but your marriage should not be separate from mm-hmm. the ministry, both of you to the call. Yeah. I find it interesting that he reads the call of the disciples of Jesus in light of his sense of the call to ministry. Absolutely. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how this comes out um, in a minute. But I wanted to go into my third, the third kind of point that I, I found about was, which was um, this kind of tagged on point of, of Jesus's um, a mission and Calvin points out that Jesus goes to work immediately and everywhere that he did not rest, that Jesus did not rest. And Calvin noted that Jesus cured all kinds of disease, but it did not mean that all illnesses were healed, that people mm. could still be sick, mm-hmm. which is... A little bit of a rationalizing. A I little think. bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. And one of the other things to note here is that Matthew makes kind of a general statement about Jesus' teachings and healings. And Calvin believes that this was a means of establishing his divine authority. Mm, so, interesting. So that's the backdrop then. And I did some work on some um, one of, an author that I I am impressed with, a scholar named um, um, uh, Sajun Pak. And she does some work on prophecy, um, particularly Old Testament. But I thought what she says is really important. So I'm going to kind of put that together with some of the things that I'm familiar with. But... Um, because I think the most significant part of this whole thing for the reformers is the call of these first disciples to be preachers of the word, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and Alan mentioned that that was kind who came to this passage thinking that is what they could, could get out of it. Um, and in this case, um, the passage is the call of here specifically men into public service in the name of God. Now, as we look at the passage in Matthew, we get that quotation of prophecy from Isaiah and then Jesus' public ministry. So the question is, what does the prophecy mean? So on this work by um, Sajin Pak, um, her comments match the observations we saw in the commentary. Now for Luther, at least initially, prophecy went to the priesthood of all believers, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. makes sense with what we know. And this makes sense. Everyone could, could be their own priest. They could interpret their own scripture. We also know that that doesn't go so well. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and of course, that leads to a lot of these people that become these kind of radicals that yeah. um, and, and that do threaten kind of the the whole status quo, not just of the church, but really of the of the whole civic structure too. Sure. So by the time we get to the second generation reformers, which include Calvin, we have learned that this plan has gone awry. So Calvin and in case of um, and Bullinger in particularly call for prophecy to build clerical identity. And this is consistent with what um, Calvin says in the commentaries. For Calvin, the Holy Spirit never speaks apart from God's word. It sounds like your your seminary class. (laughs) There is no possibility for new revelation, but the pastor becomes a prophetic voice in preaching through scripture. In other words, prophecy becomes an office of the church. Mm. Hmm. As opposed to a gift of the Spirit, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and and Calvin's going to be the one that's going to m- make it into an office mm-hmm. of the church, right? Mm-hmm. So we have with the Reformed tradition is the development of the role of a pastor as prophet, and I think it has this theological foundation, a practical purpose, and ultimately a rebuke of the actions of the Anabaptists. Bullinger says, quote, in the New Testament, those were called prophets who uncovered the meaning of scripture to the people and moreover who taught, who exhorted, and who comforted. 
Bullinger is setting forth some points made by Zwingli and then further adds that a prophet would be someone who preaches according to faith and love. I mean, you know, I would say it depends on the prophet, I, um, especially in, in the New Testament. There are, some, you know, like, for example, there's an instance where Paul is making his final journey to Jerusalem and he encounters a Christian prophet who binds his hands and says, this is the way you will be bound and led to Rome. And so, you know, that's not really preaching in terms of the word of God. It's more what we would see as, as sort of a, a symbolic prophetic action, you know, right? Uh, sort of like something that a Jeremiah or an Ezekiel might do or an Elijah, right? Right. And, and, and so it depends on the prophets. I would say that's, it was true because Paul speaks about his own gift of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And then of course Mm -hmm. with him, you know, the, 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 the teaching and preaching of the word was very central. And he, he sees that he interprets prophecy from that standpoint as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. But um, there were other, prophets who um you know i some some think some think that some of the words of jesus may have come from christian prophets after the fact right when we have passages in the gospels that we can't exactly account for as was this actually something that the historical jesus said some people believe that this was a christian prophet's prophet speaking in the name of the risen lord could be could be yeah 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 i I can see how Bullinger would make this point because this is very consistent with Reformation theology, right? With Reformed theology, right? right. I think I think that's I think that's the case here. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, I think too. Bullinger's still going to be set in a harmonizing mindset, and that mm-hmm. harmonizing mindset is not is going to take a piece like that, and they're going to say, okay, that's that's atypical of what the the broader core is to some extent because you're trying to make it all fit together. So that's just kind of a broad observation. Yeah. Um, and so mind you that, that Bullinger is the one who's going to take over for um, Zwingli right. when Zwingli dies, right? right. Um, so I think if, and, and, and he had a lot of, by the way, communication with Calvin. They were both part of this mm-hmm. whole Swiss thing. And, and, and they agreed often, um, but, but not always. Um, so I think when we think about Old Testament prophecy, we don't necessarily hear comfort of, and love in this discussion, although sometimes we do, right? right? That also depends on the prophet. Exactly. So <laughs> yeah. it seems that the Reformers see the prophecy in the Reformation as kind of an evolution from the Old Testament tradition and, even, and ever more in line with Christ as a manifestation of God's love. And this is definitely in line with the church that is now emphasizing assurance and salvation and God's grace over the God judge of the medieval church. So again, you're kind of hearing the theology come out of it now. Um, Now, it is not until we get to Calvin that we see the prophet become directly connected to the pastoral office. And according to Pack, Calvin is greatly influenced by Bullinger, but also I think it it makes sense within the context of Calvin creating a systematic theology that he would not only define who God is, but how the church is formed in response to it. Mm-hmm. So, and as we've studied, Calvin always upholds the Old Testament prophets and the commentaries, always looking to both their immediate historical situation and suggesting what the prophecy means for his time. 
In other words, he even looked at how the prophets understood the law and how the law became the framework of the prophecy of the Old Testament prophets. So in other words, here we get this tradition of recognizing layers in Scripture and the ability to apply it to the present. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the the law was the foundation. The prophets essentially called the people back to the covenant based on the the, the law. Exactly. So he's in in his Calvinist mind. So this is how you can kind of see him moving from Bollinger is then, and the New Testament then is doing the same Mm -hmm. thing all in light Mm -hmm. of the law. Mm-hmm. is the kind of the foundation that's a little bit different than what Bullinger had identified well and and again i've said this before but that's one of the things that really attracts me to the reformed tradition yeah. because of that that consistent hermeneutic you know that doesn't see jesus as departing from prior revelation but rather right. jesus is building upon it right so all this, <laughs> what is significant about this for the Reformation is that Calvin and the Reformed tradition believe in a unique pastoral office um, that put those called into a unique category as true prophecy that relies on scriptural proficiency. Another distinction in the Reformed tradition is that all scripture is built on itself. Therefore, prophecy in the New Testament is built off of that law. Luther, however, saw prophecy as a preacher of Christ. This is important for Luther. The Old Testament would be a predictor of the gospel, and for Calvin, it would not. Well, and you know, we we're all familiar for for Luther. If it doesn't preach Christ, then it's not exactly. really of value. Exactly. But I think today, as you know, we are in conversations with people from these different traditions. You can still hear that That's today, true. and true. so I'll still have folks come into my church saying, "Oh, well, the Old Testament predicts this," mm-hmm. and so you kind of have to go back through and say, "Well, that's really not how we see it because it's it's thicker than that." It's but if they if they're in this hermeneutical framework of the law versus the gospel. I find it almost impossible to get through some it, of those It folks. really is hard to get yeah. through, exactly. Or they'll, and then they'll, they'll almost move to the argument, which not, wasn't Luther of, well, we don't even need the Old Testament, right. right? Right. So you kind of get yourself in a problem. And I think you, I think you really water down the richness of Scripture. Yeah. But when, and this again reminds us of the centrality of the law and the Reformed tradition. Remember, we talked about how the Ten Commandments sure. were what they would, the one thing you could put in your sanctuary. So, yeah. um, anyway, this is um, a text which is used to support the office of the pastor, and we get a lot of the background and the development of the pastoral tradition and expectations of different denominations. Yeah. So, Thanks, Christy. Yep. Yeah. Hi, friends. We're back. And in our break, we were talking a little bit about how the reformed notion of the office of a pastor as an office that requires training um, may be changing in our Presbyterian world. Um, As most of us know, um, uh, a lot of churches are getting to the place where they can't really afford to pay a full-time pastor. And so we're seeing a great, much greater need for commission pastors to fill uh, some of our pulpits and to serve some of our churches. And so, you know, how does that relate to call to ministry? How does that relate to the, this reform notion of, of, of the pastor, the role of a pastor right. as an office and that requires training? I do think that the future of the church in the 21st century is going to involve a lot more creative strategies like commission pastors, like yoked parishes. I think um, 
I do think that the installed pastor is not going to necessarily be the norm for the 21st century. Right. I, I, I agree. I think one of the things that has been always on my mind is when I look at a church website, I look at the pastor, I look at the training, and I found there's a tendency now not to even list training, right. which I find right. to be problematic. And, you know, I, I, I really like going to Calvin here, and Calvin uses this here as this idea that, no, these people are called, but they're not called just to talk randomly. They're called, mm. um, they're called by the Holy Spirit, and they're they're called to to be taught. And this idea that these uh, these this called disciples are going to spend these years learning from Jesus. They're going to be they're going to be training involved, and and we know this all the way through, right? They they're learning, but they don't get it yet, and yeah. um, that there's this process, and not just somebody just. You know, well, getting, and in fact, Luke says, as we've seen before, that it was the spirit it would, that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and that was basically sort of what helped them to see, mm-hmm. uh, and and became mm-hmm. the 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 sort of the clue that that made everything fall into place. Right. Well, it's so easy to it's so easy to to fall into really bad theology. Yeah. And it's such a risk or, well, I'm just reading the Bible. It's obvious what it says. Well, we know historically <laughs> that's not going to work. No. <laughs> we talked about well, that Well, it already. doesn't always work. I mean, one of the basic principles of hermeneutics, even in the Reformed tradition, is that you go with the plain sense of Scripture. But there are plenty of places where trying to figure out what the plain sense of Scripture is exactly. can be challenging. Exactly, exactly. And, and people can go off in some pretty dangerous directions, and I think that's not a way to build the, build the church in the long yeah. run. Yeah. You know, I, I think the crucial thing for me is um, I think it comes down to that sense of calling. You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah. um, I have never really looked to the calling of the disciples in the Gospels as a model for my sense of calling in ministry, I think I've probably more identified with some of the things Paul has had to say about his sense of calling mm-hmm. as a way of identifying my own sense of calling. Right. But I think it, I think it boils down to that sense of calling, and and you know, um, it's it's hard to quantify a call, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to discern a call sometimes, right? But if someone has that sense of calling to serve a church that they love, you know, and, and if, the, you know, is this what I, one of the things I love about our, our polity is that, you know, it's, it's, it's between the church and the individual and the presbytery. And if all three can come together and say, Hey, yeah, we believe there's a sense of God calling here. Right. Then, then, it, you know, it becomes a, a pastoral relationship. I'm, I'm optimistic about the role of commissioned pastors. And, you know, I don't, I think there are, there are, as you said, many of them already have some training because they've grown up in the reform right. in the Presbyterian well, most Church. Most of the folks that I know have been served on their sessions how many times? Well, and they've been lifelong members yeah, of the churches yeah. that they want to serve. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I I am optimistic as well, and I think it provides a uh, just a wonderful opportunity actually to grow because Absolutely. churches don't have to panic that their right. their new pastor they've called from from the city into their small town is going to leave in two years. Mm-hmm. I think that'll allow them to settle in and, and, and invite more people into the ministry with confidence. Well, and as a person who served churches of that size, I served two churches that were both under 50 in members. Jeez. 
um, yeah. in, in Houston. Um, and um, at the same time, they both paid me a halftime salary. And so that made a full-time right. salary for me. Um, one of the things I have always been, I've always felt very convinced of is that um, those small churches, I think, have a much greater opportunity for truly reaching people who are non-churched in this society um, than a, a big, you know, full program church does. I, I really believe that. I mean, I think I know there are some people who look to the big, huge church to, for an anonymous experience, but I think for someone who's really going to be folded into the life of the congregation, I think those smaller churches have a much greater opportunity they, to they actually reach non-church mm-hmm. people. And so I'm very optimistic about that. Yeah, I think a great opportunity for, and you know, we've talked about um, these commission pastors in terms of small churches, I think there's opportunities in big churches too that mm-hmm. maybe can't hire a second pastor for oh, whatever right. reason. You know, that person could potentially stop step into an associate role of some kind. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's lots of possibilities for this role. Sounds yeah. good. Okay, thanks, thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.